Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as the director of the nonprofit creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about surviving childhood trauma and succeeding in life. We're going to be talking with four former foster youth about their experience and what helped them to thrive, succeed, thrive, survive. We'll be talking with Rhonda Shortino, Justin Black, Alexis Linderman Black, and Diana Mosier. And the impetus for this show came from a comment we received from one of our listeners saying, I I realize trauma is important and thank you so much for covering it, but you always knew there's going to be a but there, right? But with all this focus on trauma, we're left feeling hopeless. Do people ever survive? Are people are people who are in the foster care system are they able to make it in life? Are all are we are, are they doomed? And, and we as parents really can't do anything about it. And I thought about her comment for a long time and really took it to heart. We've been focusing a lot more uh, this year on resiliency and and things such as that because. It is important that parents realize that, and, and and foster youth, both former as well as current foster youth, realize that, yes, trauma is real, but there is a way that we can, uh, you guys can prove it, we can, if not overcome, at least put it in its place and succeed. So with that, what I'd like to do is start to and ha- hear your story, your foster care story, because I think that will put everything into perspective. So, Rhonda, let's start with you. Rhonda Shortino, so tell us about, uh, why are you on this panel? <laughs> tell us about oh. what brought you to foster care and, uh, and your experience there. Okay, Don. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, my mother left me with a neighbor and asked the neighbor to babysit while she went shopping, but she didn't go shopping. Her clothes were packed, her car was loaded, and she moved out of state. And so back in those days, if a social worker could find a biological family member, it was pretty much done. And so I was placed with my mother's parents. He was um, mentally ill which is putting it nicely. And my grandmother was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so it was a chaotic and abusive childhood. Uh, We lived in a little shack that didn't have, you know, we didn't have electricity a lot of the time. Uh, There was no shower. It was kind of difficult. We didn't have a lot of food. And so I was there for the most of the first 16 years of my life. There was one point in time when the social worker came by and I had two black eyes. And that was a little bit more difficult for my grandfather to explain than all the other injuries prior. And so that was when the social worker put me in the back of her car to go stay with some people. I didn't know I was going into foster care and uh, and I cannot tell you the names of those people, but I just went to stay with these people. And it was the very first time that I had ever seen a clean house. And it was the very first time that I had ever seen a refrigerator full of food. I thought I didn't I didn't know such a thing existed. I'd never seen a shower. It was just 
amazing. As I look back on it now, I think, oh my goodness. I mean, what must I have been like with those people? They had so much food. So the, so the foster mom kept a bowl of like M&Ms or something. And every time I would walk past the M&Ms, I would scoop some up because, you know, I thought that she didn't know. I was the only kid in the home. <laughs> and so no sooner would I steal her M&Ms that she would just refill the bowl. And, and so the one conversation I remember with those people, because I wasn't there for very long, but the foster father said something to me that stayed with me. It has stayed with me my whole life, and it has really guided my life. I was throwing a temper tantrum on their white linoleum floor. And, you know, when a child throws a temper tantrum, it means they, they, they feel safe. And uh, so I finally could let all of this out. And so I couldn't do that in the presence of my grandparents who you know, would burn me with cigarettes and disciplined me with a skillet of hot oil. And so here I am throwing a tantrum on the kitchen floor. And the lady, I remember her standing there and she's just kind of wringing her hands. She didn't know what to do. And the foster father came to the doorway and said, young lady, you were put here for a reason and you better be about finding out what it is. And I'm like, I'm like seven or eight years old. I had no idea what he was talking about. And fast forward, I was 27 years old sitting at my desk in the insurance office where I worked. And I opened up an envelope of thank you notes from children and the CEO of Hillview Acres Children's Home telling me that what I had done helped them keep the doors open of the children's home. And I remembered the words of that foster father from 20 years before telling me that there was a purpose for my life. And I've been seeking that purpose ever since. I quit my job and I started my own insurance organization that was dedicated solely to protecting and defending the good people and organizations that take care of abused children. And that's what I did right up until I wrote my first book which was actually supposed to be a letter to a foster girl, 17-year-old girl making wrong decisions at 100 miles an hour. And now I'm on my 15th book. So that's my story. <laughs> okay, thank you. We'll come back to that. All right, next up, Justin, Justin Black. Can you tell us your connection to foster care? Yeah, of course, of course. So again, thank you so much for having us on the show, Don. We definitely appreciate it. And for me, uh, my process or journey in the system started at nine years old, or even I would say before then, you know, my family on both my mom and my dad's side deal with histories of drug abuse, deal with histories of uh, domestic violence in their family, which became generational uh, mm -hmm. before I was born, generational with, with their parents with drug abuse sometimes on my mom's side and uh, domestic violence on my dad's side. So th this is something that was generationally practiced on both sides of my family and kind of left me in the middle of things. So mental health issues going unresolved for generations in my family. Uh, and at nine years old, you know, I found myself with, as the youngest of five siblings, uh, my 18-year-old sister pregnant, uh, my 14-year-old brother had a child on the way, and my 11-year-old older brother. And all of us kind of lived in an abandoned home with me and my, mo my mom and my dad. All of us lived in an abandoned home in Detroit. And we were in the process of trying to figure out, all right, what's the next step? And 
the reason why we were in this situation is because we were on the run from Child Protective Services. And Child Protective Services had grown familiar with our living situation in our previous home of regularly not having food and water and, you know, the living conditions that we were living in with my mom's substance abuse and just the environment that we grew up in. And we were on the run from Child Protective Services. And we went back to our old neighborhood that we lived in and living in the abandoned house for, I would say, March, uh, no, 2006 from uh, about October to March. And, you know, living in an abandoned house during the winter is extremely brutal. So as you can imagine. so In Detroit. <laughs> in Detroit. In Detroit. Yeah. So this is Michigan weather we're talking about. So mm-hmm. thinking about that and as the spring kind of came around, I think my mom you know, my dad was like, you know, we want to fix the house. We're going to make sure it's good and everything. So you guys have somewhere to live, somewhere safe. And it just, just never really worked out for whatever reason. And during that time, you know, I lost a lot of trust in my parents. And I felt like I wasn't protected by them. And eventually at nine years old, uh, I was released into the foster care system. And my myself and my older brother, who was 11 at the time, me and him went together into the foster care system. And we lived with our oldest brother at the time who had his own apartment, lived on his own and was taking care of himself. And I believe that he wanted to be there for us to make sure we weren't just entering the system just with with strangers at the time. But being he was only maybe 27, 28 years old, you know, I think he more or less had good intentions, but it didn't work out, unfortunately. So after two years, we moved with my aunt for about four or five years and from there, we moved again to move with my brother's best friend parents for I maybe stayed there about eight months. And then from there, you know, I was on the fence of going to a detention center. As you may know, a lot of youth who don't have anywhere to go, they move into detention centers mm-hmm. because there's just not anywhere for them to go. So I was in this process of possibly being in that situation. And from there, you know, I talked to my social worker and she said that there was a home outside of Detroit in Southfield, Michigan, where uh, it was a group home where four boys, a maximum of four boys, and there was an open slot for me to stay there. And she said it was the perfect situation where, uh, you know, it was funded by the church and had mentors from the church, you know, just a bunch of amazing people surrounding this group home, funding it, supporting it, and it would be an amazing opportunity for me to stay And during this time, you know, I had relationships with my biological family and my parents and dealing with so much worthlessness because during my entire time in care, they never lived more than like 20, 25 minutes away from me, but didn't really feel that love and support from them. So, you know, I I was really feeling hopeless and hopeless at this time. But my social worker encouraged me to go into the home and really boost my confidence of who I was. You know, I wanted to go to college, but... At the time, I had like a 2.1 GPA. That's maybe being nice. I probably had <laughs> a 1.8 or something like that. But um, You were rounding up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a terrible GPA and not doing well in school. And as my home situation started to collapse, my academic life started to collapse as well, just following suit. So everything kind of collapsing around me. And, and now I'm in this environment where I started to have more people who had confidence in me. You know, in my home, I lived in with my brother's best friend parents that I brought home like a 2.0 GPA. And they told me that, you know, this is better than I thought you'd do. 
So with, with that in mind, I didn't have any confidence in myself and I started to intentionally not do good because nobody really cared. So being in an environment where people actually cared, you know, it was it was helpful for me to really start believing in myself and not only just work hard for me, but work hard for the people around me. So which led me to going into college and my, my freshman year meeting this amazing person that I now call my wife. So. Well, that's a good segue into that person you now call your wife, Alexis Linderman Black. As Justin said, they are married. Uh, and uh, Alexis, you are all, you also have your own story about foster care. So tell us yours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was actually something that did bring us closer together because we could understand with our shared experiences uh, and help us kind of work through that and even heal together in a lot of ways. So I would say for myself, I entered foster care at 13. Uh, but before that, I lived with my biological mother until she actually committed suicide uh, when I was six years old. And then I went and lived with my biological father, who then had sole custody. And he was physically, sexually, and emotionally abusive for about eight years until it got so bad to where it was visible to other people. And uh, and then I was finally taken away from his home uh, when I was 13. And I went and lived with his brother. So it was my uncle. And they were also emotionally, immensely abusive. So I really didn't have a chance to heal from even what I dealt with my biological father until pretty much college. Because... To add on top of it, I entered into an abusive relationship at 13 that lasted till 22. So it was a lot of compounded trauma that I was really dealing with throughout high school. And then there was always what felt like something traumatic every single year of high school where my freshman year I had to testify against my biological father. My sophomore year, we had a house fire, so we had to move out. Uh, My junior year, my godfather passed away, which was my closest family member. And then also my junior year, I was kicked out of my aunt and uncle's house, which in the moment being kicked out felt like, you know, my world is crashing down. Where am I going to go? I had all these threats that um, I could be placed out of state or with a horrible family and all these things. But it actually ended up being the best thing that's ever happened to me because then I met my foster now adoptive parents. So it was my forever home. Uh, and that's actually, you know, that completely changed my life in every way that I view the world, I view myself, and I know I wouldn't be married and where I am right now without them. And I know we're going to get to that in a little bit, but I I always have to throw them in there because they're (laughs) they're phenomenal people and they changed my life. Okay. Well, excellent. And and what age was that when you were placed with them in foster? 17. 17. Gotcha. Okay. Excellent. Diana Mosier, thank you for being so patient. Tell us your story. My story. Well, while I don't come from foster care, I do come from childhood trauma and succeeding from what I've been through there. Honestly, it kind of, it's from child abuse, started young age, five to age 15, um, sexually molested, physically abused and mentally abused throughout my childhood. And then, you know, take that into high school and then you have, you know, dating violence and then you take Mm -hmm. it into the workplace. And then the workplace was sexual assault and sexual harassment. And that lasted you know, well into my 20s and 30s and honestly, as a realtor into my 40s. So that has also happened and mm-hmm. 50s, every, I've learned to navigate it much better now <laughs> going through all of the years. But my story is just surviving from everything that I've gone through and finding the little wins to get to every little milestone 
And, you know, it's not a perfect science by any means, but if you can find a win at five years old when your dad is molesting you and take that win and just tuck it away, that's kind of how you you roll that into the next one. And, you know, again, like I said, you don't win every time, but the ones that you win, if you hold on to that, you know, they exist. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's the basis of my story is. And then, you know, little strategies along the way that I mm-hmm. always say, Rhonda knows my four F's that I, that I, you know, have, which are, I live to this day. It's family, friends, fitness, and funny, always funny. So every single day, one of those hit, and it just keeps you in a great space. But it does turn that into success because you learn how to navigate through difficult, mm-hmm. difficult waters. Well, that's a, a great segue into uh, what I want to talk about now are, it, the, the number actually doesn't matter, but let's say two, or, and if you're feeling inspired more, of the most important things that have helped you heal and, and ultimately thrive after your years either in foster care and or early life trauma. Justin, let's start with you. Yeah, so you said what helped us heal as we transition into adulthood and early on in our life? Mm-hmm. Well, and ultimately thrive in your life. What, what, what helped you heal from the trauma you experienced through the multiple moves that you had throughout your life and, and trauma and neglect and witnessing violence and things such as that? Yeah, of course, of course. So it, it's a very hard process. And I think that first and foremost, I, I, I think in this environment, a lot of people always ask myself and Alexis, what was the light switch that went off for you all to just made you say, oh, well, let me change my life. And it wasn't exactly a light switch or anything, but it was it's a process. And even to this day, there's a daily process that takes place that, that helps me keep my myself on the right track and it helps me to go in the right direction. And uh, one of the things that drives me and drives us in the right direction is, number one, having grace and mercy for the people who wronged us in life. So I had to understand that first, you know, when it came to my mom, I didn't know until I was an adult, maybe around like 20 years old, maybe 19, that I talked to my brother and my brother, you know, he had a situation where he went back to live with my mom. And this is maybe a couple of years before she passed away, but he went back to live with her for, uh, you know, he was struggling and went back to live with her. And they just had some of the most authentic, I guess, conversations that they ever mm-hmm. had in life. And she talked a bit about her abuse growing up and how, she went to live with her stepmom and she was molested and she was tortured and she was sexually mm-hmm. abused. And in her perspective, uh, she raised us. And even though raising us wasn't in the best environment, she, we weren't like beaten by her. We weren't tortured the way she was tortured. And we weren't uh, going through some of the things that she was going through with sexual abuse. So she saw it in her eyes as this is a lot better than what I went through mm-hmm. growing up. So you have a good life or you're doing okay, which it wasn't exactly that, but she never had the opportunity or chance to heal from her trauma and things that she went through. So she naturally passed down some of those things to us to where even though we were living in poverty and had some crazy situations growing up, you know, it wasn't maybe as bad or compared to or our normal that she'd grown up with. So Seeing it from that perspective, I had to have a lot of grace for my mom that maybe she didn't have a chance to understand what, you know, a healthy way of living looked like. And I had to take it on myself to say, all right, as I have children and uh, as we create our own family, 
I can't, I have to be intentional about not passing down those things to my child. Just because I survived poverty or I survived abuse or whatever it may be, I shouldn't force my child to go through that as well. And another thing that has helped me heal and become who I am today is understanding that I was emotionally attached to my parents in the sense that if they didn't come to my football games, if they didn't visit me on my birthday, if they didn't do something for me or call me or whatever it may be, then I will feel like my birthday isn't even important anymore. You know, this thing that I've accomplished, if they don't validate me, it isn't important. But I had to get out of the mindset that I need external validation for the things going on in my life and see myself as important, not because I've been validated by my mom, my dad, or not even my partner. But what I'm doing is important because it's creating an impact and it's making other people feel good who needs the help and support. But it's also supporting me in my mind, body, and soul. And it's bringing glory to God at the end of the day. So I had to understand that from a different perspective. And it, it, mm-hmm. I had to constantly remind myself of that because I am still to this day, sometimes look for external validation from people. So, Yeah, I can understand that. I hope you are feeling as encouraged and inspired as I am in listening to this episode. I, I want to let you know that there are 12 free online courses available at the creatingafamily.org online parent training center. And there are thanks to our partners, the Jockey Bing Family Foundation, who are supporting that. You go to bit.ly slash JBS support to find these courses, and that's bit.ly slash JBF support. Uh, Rhonda, what are some of the important things that have helped you heal and ultimately thrive after your years of, of trauma, of foster care, multiple moves, abuse, horrible abuse? Yeah. Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so, my whole answer. Jesus. Uh, my faith in God, I, those, those foster parents that I was with, like I said, for a very short time, they took me to church and they introduced me to Jesus. And I've had that faith that has seen me through everything since. Mm -hmm. And then I would say my first job, I got my first job when I was 15 years old. And with every single paycheck came greater self-esteem. And so I felt better about myself And I felt like I was providing for myself. And then that sort of moved me to seek emancipation. So I emancipated when I was 16 years old. I became the youngest licensed insurance agent in the state of California when I was 17. And and I bought my first house when I was 19 and my first rental when I was 21. And it it all started, though, with with faith in God and, and the seed of a belief that I actually had some worth and value. And because if you don't feel that you have, you know, worth and value as a person, you probably won't try to, you know, get that job. You probably won't have the courage Mm -hmm. to try to, Mm -hmm. you know, take that next step in growth. And so uh, for me, the, the, the faith and the belief in God's word that, that, I had some value mm-hmm. was was transformational for me. And that first job made you feel like you had you could affect you had control. You could affect how your life turned out, which is an interesting, you know, that idea of control is powerful. 
Diana, you've you've shared your four Fs, but can you uh, and you may just that may be your answer that uh, the things that were most important to helping you heal and ultimately thrive. Anything you want to add to that? I remember one of the the questions you know early on was was there one or two people in your life that helped you overcome? And you know when I look back, you know I had the friends. This is why the the four Fs are so important, but. There was friends in my life that I allowed me to like my next door neighbor was my best friend. He was five years older than me, but he was literally my best friend. I had a friend up the street. They allowed me to like the girlfriend uh, down the street to, to spend the night to escape for just those, you know, maybe it's one night, maybe it's two nights. Same thing in high school. Friends that had no idea they were such an integral part in me healing because I got to see like when Rhonda alluded to you know you went to your first foster home you're like a fridge full of food what is happening here <laughs> how does this a shower what, it, what what is this goodness you know and so when you see what a normal you know ish family dynamic kind of looks like it's really healing and and then you know you fast forward to when I had a boyfriend his mom and I've said this to um, on another talk that I did with Rhonda actually, where she taught me, number one, she taught me how to count to 10 in German, which I can still do to this day. And I did it with <laughs> seven people. The second thing she taught me that has just stuck with me really was if you soak fish in milk, it takes out that, you know, sometimes that little fishy kind of smell-ish, whatever. These are, it, it, it sounds so tiny or so abstract, I guess you could say, but you know, it's these kind of things that made me laugh, that made me feel valued, that made mm-hmm. me feel cared for, you know. And so you take those and you keep going. My first job, one of my first jobs, Ron Fitzgerald, who who had since passed, he lived in Houston. But that was that sexual assault moment and sexual harassment. It was his vice president. This was the big dog of the company and who had pinned me up against a a wall next to the water cooler and, you know, was putting hands on me and trying to get me to do things. And I was able to get away, went to Ron the next morning. He fired him on the spot. No questions asked. Get out of the, you're done. Mm -hmm. He believed you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And people who protected me along the way, my, the next employer did um, something similar and just in protecting and guiding me and what business administration looks like. And, so, you know, it's just those helpful things along the way that gives you that they're little wins to me. They're little bits and pieces of value mm-hmm. that you create, you take in confidence, you know, and then you're like, wow, I can do this. I am resilient. I am strategic. Mm-hmm. I'm courageous and all the things, you know. And mm-hmm. so you just kind of, you know, and that's kind of along the way and how um, it, it kind of got the ball rolling at West, I guess. Alexis, for you, what are a couple of the most important things that helped you heal and ultimately brought you here today. Yeah, I would definitely say the fact that I was surrounded with several people who believed in me, even when I didn't believe in myself. Mm -hmm. And really, as was mentioned, you know, those people that were willing to give you guidance, were willing to kind of look out for you and provide that safe space for you when, when maybe you didn't have that at home. And I, and I can think of several people. It's hard to, it's hard to always, you know, pinpoint down to a, a couple things, but I would mm-hmm. say definitely, you know, the individuals in my life that looked out for me, but then also my own 
accountability within my healing journey. Nobody's going to heal for me. I have to heal for myself. And so I had to make sure that, you know, even though counseling was court ordered or when I graduated high school and I didn't have to go anymore, I still was intentional on going to counseling. I still was intentional on finding and seeking these healthier relationships because again, my healing is my own accountability uh, in this and nobody's going to do that for me. Was it a therapist that helped you? Man, it's such a a wise thing. Just that is such. It, it sounds simple, but it is so deep and so hard. The understanding that we are responsible for our growth, and that we can't we can't outsource that. But there are people who never learn that. Was that through therapy that that you learned that? I think that was more of uh, in life lessons, um, just being in that abusive relationship and the fact that, you know, I allowed it to go on for eight years and several other things that was happening around me. And why was it happening? Why was I allowing these things to continue for so long? And it was because I wasn't taking that accountability for my own actions. What can I do better? How can I make different decisions and get out of these relationships or get out of uh, these circumstances? And that ultimately came down to my own autonomy and decision-making process. Uh, And so I figured that if I wanted to change, I had to be the one to do it because no matter who I called to cry Mm -hmm. to and would listen to me, uh, Mm -hmm. I had to make that decision. Nobody could do that for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's wise, wise words. Are you enjoying today's podcast? If so, would you tell a friend about it, what you've learned, both on this show and any of the others you've listened to at the creatingafamily.org podcast? We love strengthening and inspiring more families, and by doing so, we hope to help you raise strong kids. You can help us by spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you. You know, we we have the um, we use the saying. In fact, at creating a family, we have a magnet that we give out at uh, meetings and at conferences and stuff. And and I will paraphrase, but it, it's basically the power of one. You know, that it takes one person who steps up for a child. And we hope that children have more than one, but but one is enough. We need one. And so I want to talk about that. Who was the one, if you had one, uh, maybe that isn't a, or who were the ones, I guess that would be making it plural would be better. So let's see, Diana, you mentioned that there were a, a number of people that you've already mentioned specifically. And and I think, is it is it correct to say that it wasn't somebody in your family, extended family or in your family, who was able to be that one for you. Is that correct? Not the one. Well, it's that's interesting because my grandmother, um, who was my ultimate hero, just because she was the one person in our family outside of our home who I could, you know, kind of escape to, who believed me, who asked me questions, couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... But her belief means something. Just being believed is huge. It was huge. So she, she, and she was my, I mean, and she was the one who took, of course, gave me the love for Disneyland. (laughs) So I go to, I've been to Disneyland, you know, for the past 53 years. Twice a year, every year for 53 years, other than when they were closed. But she, she just always made a safe place for me. And, you know, safe place is a, is a big deal, is a big word for me. I'm a realtor. And part of what I say all the time is I help people find their safe place. And it's mm-hmm. because of it. It's just because all of those lessons along the way. 
And she, she basically gave me that safe place. I stayed at her house for summers and, you know, any chance I could get and, you know, she could come out. And so, so I would, I would still go back, even though there were, you know, the, the friends along the way, the employers along the way, the boyfriend's mom along the way, my grandmother was my steady person. Mm -hmm. She was there. Alexis, who was your one or ones? It was definitely uh, more than just one single individual in my life. I think it, it does take that one person to plant the seed, uh, but then it takes other multiple individuals to nurture that going forward. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was my godparents and specifically my godfather, his name's Uncle Giles. And my biological father always said like, um, college is a waste of money. Don't go. And just would kind of poop on all my dreams and all these things. And then I would go to my godfather and he would say, you know, the University of Michigan would be lucky to have you and phrase things like that, where it's like, Mm -hmm. people would be lucky to have you and you can do whatever you want and, you know, reach the stars, all these things. Like he he would be the one to plant the seed, even in, even when I didn't see that for years and he passed away. So he never actually saw, you know, the things that I was able to accomplish, but you know, he did plant the seed. And then moving forward with my adoptive parents, with my with my adoptive mother, Kim, um, she definitely, you know, believes in me. And she calls me and will say, like, you know, no matter what you accomplish, I'll still love you and you're still my daughter. And, you know, it's things like that that still, you know, makes you feel loved and validated, even though it's like you. I think all kids, you know, we always want the the love and validation from our parents. We want to a lot of times succeed for them and make them proud. And so for her to say something like that was really special. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm smiling. And, and as you say it, so yes, Rhonda, how about you? Were you lucky enough to have one or a ones in your life? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, the foster parents whose names I don't know. <laughs> Second of all, I would say that a 14 year old girl changed my life, saved my life. Uh, the very first day of high school, she was spinning in her chair saying, hi, my name is Janet. What's your name? And she did that with me. And I realized when she did that, that she treated me exactly the same way as she treated every other kid that she did that with that day. And I knew then when she made eye contact with me, I realized that many people didn't because I was very hard to look at because I was dirty. So we, you know, we had no shower. We, we had um, the water would flow out of the house right into the yard. And so I just didn't realize I was dirty. I smelled, I didn't own a toothbrush until I was 13 years old. And, and so she didn't see any of that. She just saw another person. And she was my best friend until I lost her to breast cancer in 2015. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second one, a teacher, an amazing teacher. She's still one of my best friends, Barbara Naylor, biggest prayer warrior. And she knew from my file in high school that I was, uh, back then they called it a ward of the court. And so she was really hard on me. I thought she was the meanest teacher ever in the history of teachers. But in her mind, she felt like she had to teach me typing and shorthand. She had to make me employable. And that was going to be the way that she could best help me. And sure enough, 
my uh, the next person is my first employer, Chuck Wheeler. God bless him, wherever he is. He gave me that very first job because I was the fastest typist up in high school and uh, and had that Greg shorthand. And that what ne- neither one of us knew at that time that that was going to launch a 40 year career in insurance and risk management. So those are my people. Wow. And I'm so glad you use their names. I hope they hear this. I hope so too. <laughs> All of us who hope that we have been a person in someone's life, we don't expect gratitude, but it is, it's powerful when you get it. All right, Justin, how about you? And I'm particularly curious because it seems like a big turning point for you is when you moved to the to the group home. But but first, I'll come back to that. First, tell me who your people are. Who was your person or persons? Yeah, I have multiple persons and it's it's hard for me to kind of give one person all the credit, but first and foremost, all glory to God for me, for me becoming who I am today. You know, I think it's it's it goes to it's a huge part of the reason why we wrote our book because you know the statistics that before me in my life as a black person, as someone who come from foster care, come from the family history that I've come from, the odds are really stacked against you. So first mm-hmm. and foremost, all glory to God being able to use my testimony to do what we do today. But as far as people, I have mentors. My mentor Saba who is like a rock star in the Michigan foster care system, always providing opportunities, homes, and, and resources for youth in the child welfare system in Michigan. I've had mentors, uh, the, the couple who started the group home that I lived in, uh, I'm still in contact with them to this day, and they've supported me and, and given me feedback and helped me get out so many opportunities and so many things. They've taken me and shown me places. We've I remember we did like a 15 hour trip to New York, just driving and and like I don't even think I've really been out of state to that point. They took me. But my first time out of state was going to New York. And that was just like in a once in a lifetime opportunity. So, so many experiences that they've shown me and given me and really just having married couples around me who are founded and, and based in their faith. And God was really so inspiring. It helped me in my relationship now. And I think that their belief in me and what they saw in me allowed me to become who I am today. And those continuous words of encouragement, you know, from being in a home where people thought that they didn't think much of me to being in a group home where it had married couples around me who've been married for like 10, 20, 30 plus years, longer than I've been alive, who are speaking life into me and see greatness in me when they've accomplished multiple things that I, if I could do half of that, I would be grateful for. So them speaking life into me really helped me and, and really gave me the confidence that I have today. We group homes have a bad reputation. We hear we have this image when we, we mention when group homes are mentioned, we have this image of children being warehoused and not having personal attention and and that, you know, the, the, the pushes to get kids out of group homes. What was different about the or maybe not different, but it sounds like something was different about the group home you were in, because that seemed to be and when you were telling your story, a, a turning point. Am I am I correct on that? Yeah, so. For me, I am not going to say I'm like an advocate for group homes. And I, in a perfect world, there will be no foster care system in general, right? Yes, so there is no perfect scenario where, oh, going with family is the perfect scenario, which you, you heard in Alexa's story, that wasn't the best. Or going, going with a, a foster home or a group home. These are not ideal situations because in a perfect world, we will all be with our families and be in a safe place. So 
there may be kids and nobody's story is the same. So there may be kids who've gone to a group home and it's their worst experience of their life. Mm-hmm. And for me, it may be the complete opposite, but we're both right. Yeah. So Good for me, for me in this group home, again, I think the main thing that was so important about it was that it did have house parents and we, you know, we had our good times, bad times, but I still thank God for them. And they were important to me in my life. And so it was funded by the church. So the church didn't just put up the funding for the home, but what they did was they made sure there was around the clock mentors, tutors, and we had our house parents and we had everything we pretty much needed. You know, if I, I, I learned how to drive from, you know, the people who taught me how to drive in that group home. And I feel so bad for the person, the first person who <laughs> let me drive their car. It's a, it's a bad scratch. It was a bad scratch on the side of it, but you know, I got my license now and I'm good. I'm so sorry. <laughs> for that. But um, yeah, it's so, so many amazing people like Spanish tutors, math tutors, and it's just like around the clock support and encouragement. So uh, I, I think that having a spiritual foundation was important. It wasn't forced on us, uh, the guys in the house. I think the limited number of youth in the home and if there are group homes with like number like 20 kids in there, I think that there being only about four boys in the house was extremely important. But I think it's just extremely important for small numbers and just being intentionally focused mm-hmm. and people who really looked like me in this environment as well. The mentors that I had, the parents that I had, extremely important when having people who look like me as, as well was and seeing other black men successful because I didn't even think that was possible at a point in my life. So it, all these components together was just so important to me in my life and becoming who I am now. Okay. Thank you. You know, when we talk about and call you survivors, it can, it, it can negate the fact that even though you have survived I'm curious, do you still carry the baggage? Uh, does survival mean that, that the scars go away? Alexis, let me start with you. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think people look at us all the time like, you know, now that we speak on stages, we have our book, we have all these things that we're healed. But I don't think anyone that comes from our background is necessarily healed. I think it, healing is an ongoing journey that does last a lifetime, and we have to continue to be intentional throughout our lives. And it could be through, you know, faith, counseling, whatever, journaling, whatever that looks like in your healing journey. Um, But there are things that's going to come up through triggers, through memories, through things like that, uh, where we don't even, you know, we think that everything's taken care of. We don't have to (laughs) worry about it anymore, but something may come up. It may be a smell or a touch or whatever in different seasons or phases of our lives. And that's definitely, you know, even something that we've had to navigate in our relationship and in our marriage and why we are in individual and marriage counseling, because this is something we have to be ongoing and intentional about for the rest of our lives. Um, if we want to have a successful marriage and just successful relationships, even with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then now that we are pregnant and we're expecting, uh, we have to be even more intentional that we're not passing these things down, you know, to, to our future baby. So, mm-hmm. uh, so we, it's just all about it, that intentionality um, because things will come up. And I think it's neglectful and slightly naive to think that it's not and to think that it's just going to go away and we can just suppress it because it's going to bleed out into areas of our lives if we Mm -hmm. don't really be intentional and and tackle it head on. Anybody else want to talk about 
baggage. Rhonda, do you do you also carry baggage, or have you been able to wipe that away now? I would say that the. I mean, I'm I'm much older. I have. I have suits that are older than you, Justin and Alexis. So <laughs> I would say that, you know, I've, I've been around, I've made a few trips around the sun. And I would say that for me, the scars are still there, but I'm stronger where the scars are. And I have found that I'm stronger and more resilient and more resourceful and more courageous because of what I've been through. And so baggage... I wouldn't call it baggage. I think what I've been through is is sort of woven into the fabric of my being. And so those are the things that the, the experiences are the things that have created in me the characteristics of successful survivors. I mean, I wrote about that. And when when successful survivors of trauma connect, like the first time I met Diana, you connect on a much deeper level than the average person connects. You're just, it's like you've known each other for 20 years because of those those shared experiences. It doesn't matter that you didn't have the experiences together and you know, you're know you 50 years apart in age or whatever it is, the feelings of shame, humiliation, feeling unwanted and unloved, and I could go on and on. All of those negative feelings are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And so the good news is, though, that when we when you connect on that kind of a level, relationships are richer and deeper and more meaningful. And so... I would say at my age, I wouldn't change a thing. Hmm. That's a, that is a powerful statement considering what you have, what you have gone through. Adoptions from the Heart has been a long-time sponsor and partner of Creating a Family and this podcast. Adoptions from the Heart was founded by an adoptee, and they are celebrating over 35 years of bringing families together through adoption. They are a full-service domestic infant adoption agency, and they specialize in open adoptions. You can see and hear parents and birth parents and adoptive parents share their stories at their Facebook, YouTube channel which is AFTH-TV. Now, AFTH adopts it from the heart, but AFTH-TV. And it airs on Tuesday morning. You can also follow them. So, Diana, if you could give advice to, you were not in foster care, but experienced trauma. You may have wished you had been removed, but if you could leave with it, I'm going to ask the rest of you this too. If you could give foster or adoptive parents advice, what piece of advice would you give them? Because they're going to be raising, the ones who are going to be listening are raising the the, the little Dianas and the little Rhondas, Justins and Alexises of the world. What would you like for them to know that will help them help these children, help them heal? That's a great question. Um, Actually, I've thought about this a lot is, you know, children, they struggle. They they will have. They need to have that feeling of having that safe place when they struggle. You know, Rhonda, I did not know. I even wrote it down where you said when a child throws a tantrum, they feel safe. I didn't know. 
That's a good to know since I have two grandchildren and I'm telling you, when they go up, happy you feel safe. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But, um, you know, what? just you want to help them find or guide them into whatever little win it is that they had in that moment, whatever they're struggling with they will come out on the other side and calm themselves down. And you got to point out that win and how they did it. Because that gives them some confidence. If they like art, if they like a sport, if they like baking, cooking, helping you in the kitchen, doing dishes, chores, whatever, help them find something they're good at. Pick it out. You're the adult or, you know, they would be the adult. They can help them find that little tiny thing and then nurture that. Because when they find that, they find their power and that's what they're good at. And that forms and fosters that path that will start guiding them towards their own success and realizing it, I think. Okay. Justin, what piece of advice would you have for foster or adoptive or kinship parents? Yeah, of course. I mean, so many things that I want to say. And, you know, we talk a lot about this during our trainings for foster parents, for adoptive parents and our workshops for them. One of the things that I would definitely kind of piggyback with Diana is, you know, kind of making a sacrifice. I think it's important that we don't make a complete, we don't need to, foster parents would need to make a complete 180 when serving uh, youth, but also make sure, you know, it's so many changes that occur in the lives of youth. We're going to a different home and I've heard so many times you're in my house eating my food. You need to follow Mm -hmm. my rules. And it's just like, as foster youth, we're stripped of ownership and, and we aren't empowered at all. Make sure you are empowering youth and making sure that you can make the sacrifices as well. You know, if they like playing video games or Call of Duty, you may not have picked up a, a Xbox controller a day in your life, but maybe just pick it up and just try to play with them one day. Mm-hmm. If they like, you know, chess or checkers or whatever it may be, just play those games with them and, you know, sacrifice a little bit about your a little bit of your comfort zone in order to learn more about them and and make them feel important and give them that attention. You know, I think that so much of foster youth, we're adapting, we're changing, we need to adjust. But I think until foster and adoptive parents are able to adjust and learn how we communicate, are we more verbal communicators? Do we need to see the visual communication? How do we like to, do we like hugs? Do we like to not be touched or, you know, how do we like to communicate, you know, until you're active and able to learn more about the youth you're serving and making that sacrifice, then you won't make any progress in this world. And also I would say just, it's a community effort that you as an individual can't do this alone. As much as I harp on community for youth themselves, the foster and adoptive parents need community just as much, maybe even more. Mm-hmm. I'll say amen to that one. All right, since that's what creating a family is all about. Um, all right, Rhonda, uh, for you, what piece of advice would you leave foster, adoptive, or kin families who are raising kids who've experienced trauma? I think the most powerful thing that we can do for kids who have experienced trauma is to tell them who they are to hold up a mirror to their character traits. Because in our culture, we don't hear a lot about character. We, you know, you look at TikTok or, you know, other social media, and you see people focusing on physical appearance and what kind of car they drive or what kind of handbag or shoes they're, you know, and and all of that is so completely inconsequential. I think to hold up a mirror to a child and say, you know, you're stronger than the average person because of what you've been through. You're more resilient. Teach them what resilient means. 
you're more resourceful. You know, if, if, if the child has been somebody living in, a, in a, a poverty situation and they had to try to figure out how to make dinner and feed their younger siblings on this much rice and crusty little ketchup in the bottom, they probably did it. That's being resourceful. And, and talking about how those character traits of courage and persistence, the, the tenacity, the ability to shift from fear, which is passive, to coping, which is active, all of these things that we just know how to do, they're hugely valuable. They're highly transferable into the workplace. And those are the very things that will make them successful. So if the adult in their lives or adults point those things out to them, it builds them up. And then the second thing I would say is give them opportunities to achieve. So basically what you were saying, Diana, if we set them up for success, you know, have them watch the windows. Are the windows going to be blurry and, you know, whatever? And, okay, fine. Bite your tongue. Give them something to do that when they complete it, they feel good about themselves. And and then something else and something else that's maybe slightly out of their reach. And they'll get a thirst for achievement and accomplishment. And that builds self-esteem, I think, more so than anything that we could say. Because kids have a weasel meter. They know when you're just blowing rainbows up their armpits. And so when we <laughs> when we do this, when we help them to reach and achieve, they are building their own worth and value. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And Alexis, advice you would give to foster, adoptive, or kin families? Yeah, absolutely. I would say Justin kind of, you know, he take he took a little bit of mine, but <laughs> again, going back to that community piece um, is what he mentioned for the aspect of for foster adoptive kinship parents having their community, um, and just moving on with that is when when foster adoptive kinship parents are building out their communities, the youth are watching that and they're observing and they're seeing that example of, okay, this is how I would build a community. This is what that would look like. This is how we can support each other. And that's exactly how I learned to build my community from watching my or my foster now adoptive parents is because I saw how they relied on their neighbors and their church and other people in the community and how it was mutually beneficial. They always served as well as being served. Uh, And so it worked both ways. And so now I see that and I can model that as an adult now, because I, it was just through observation. They weren't doing anything differently or thinking of how it was necessarily impacting me. They were just figuring out how do they need support for themselves and for their biological children, but it actually helped me in a lot of ways. And then the other thing I would say is um, consistency. I think that's one of the biggest things that I actually learned from my uh, adoptive parents is no matter what they said, they always follow through with it, whether it was positive or punishment or whatever it was, they follow through with it. And I had that consistency in my life, which I very much needed. And so that's also something that I can model in my adulthood because I know what that looks like and feels like. And I like that stability of, you know, of that consistency. And so those Mm -hmm. are the, those are the biggest things I would say. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alexis Linderman-Black, Justin Black, Diana Mosier, and Rhonda Shortino for talking with us today and sharing your stories of, of thriving despite really tough beginnings. Now, I want to 
talk about at, uh, three of you have books and, and, and one of you is working on a book. So I wanted to, I want our audience to know about the books because I found I've read both of the ones. Uh, so let's start with Rhonda, Rhonda Shortino. I did not realize you had written 15 books. So let's start there. I mean, don't tell us about all 15. Pick one or two that, that you think would be directly relevant to inspire parents who are raising kids who've experienced early life trauma. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say that I want to provide a free book to anyone who wants it. It's written at a sixth grade level. I wrote it originally to a 17-year-old kid. So if you have teenagers in your home, you can get one for yourself and or for the kids in your home. Go to my website, rhonda.org, click on books, go to succeed because of what you've been through. And the coupon code is purpose is success. Purpose is success. All one word? And you'll get it free. All one. Yeah, no spaces. Purpose is success at Mm rhonda.org. So there are other books that I've written specifically for foster parents, uh, successful survivors. It's the eight character traits of survivors and how you can attain them. I will guarantee you that the kids in your care have a lot of them. And then the kindness quotient is specifically dedicated to foster parents who I call it radical hospitality. People who take kids into their home who have no idea of the value of it until many, many years later. And um, but it's it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And we can all learn about kindness from foster parents. And you were proof of that one only eight months stay. It has stayed with you all of your life. So you were proof that it uh, that it can make a difference, even if it's short. All right, Alexis and Justin, tell us about your book. Yes. So we are fortunate enough to publish in 2020 the book called Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discover Healing, Happiness and Love. This is uh, fortunate enough to become a best-selling book in three or four different categories in Amazon when how many now 13 12 or 13 book awards our first international book award just two weeks ago and now we turn this book into an entire company called redefining normal or redo speeches workshops and trainings around trauma and how trauma can become generational and we want to work toward creating generational success for families communities organizations and institutions as well so from this book we've created a companion guide called ready to redefine normal for youth We're preparing to release our faith-based companion guide this July and sometime in the fall. I think we mentioned earlier in the interview, we are expecting, uh, we're seven months pregnant right now, and um, we're expecting uh, late August, early September, and somewhere around there, we want to release our children's book to go along with the birth of our first child. So uh, we'll have that ready to go this fall and looking forward to that as well, so. Well, and congratulations on the upcoming baby. And thank you all for being with us today. It has, it has been inspirational, and I truly appreciate your being with us to share your, your tips and your, your strategies and, and how, and hopefully we can, all those who are listening can learn and apply them. Thank you so much, and for the audience, we will see you next week.